Thanksgiving is a great holiday because it's biblical to give thanks. And this may surprise you, but throughout the Old Testament, it is one of the key and pervasive aspects of worshiping God and giving thanks. In the Old Testament, gratitude to God was the primary condition with which life could be enjoyed. For Jews, every aspect of creation provided evidence of God's lordship over life. The national uh, position of Israel thanked the Lord for the magnificence of the universe. Examples include Psalm 19, 1 through 4, Psalm 33, 6 through 9, Psalm 104, 1 through 24. The people of Israel thanked God for his faithfulness to his covenant promises. And again, we see more examples throughout the Psalter for deliverance from enemies and from death. Psalm 18, 17, Psalm 30, verse 1, Psalm 30, 8 through 12, Psalm 44, 1 through 8, for forgiveness of sin, Psalms 32, 5, 99, 8, 103, 3, for answers to prayer, for compassion toward the afflicted and oppressed, for executing justice, and for continuing guidance, and on and on the list goes. Gratitude was such a vital part of Israel's worship that it pervaded their customs and their ceremonies. Thank offerings acknowledge blessings from God, and we see examples of this in Leviticus 7, 12 through 13, Leviticus 22, 29, Psalm 50, verse 14. Shouts of joy, songs of praise, even dancing, all added to the spirit of thanksgiving in worship. Feasts and festivals were celebrated in remembrance of God's steadfast love throughout their history. And we sang of it in the song. It was, his, his love endures forever. It does. And they were reminded of this. King David actually appointed Levitical priests to offer God thanks. Like in 1 Chronicles 16.4. And this custom was also carried on by Kings Solomon and Hezekiah. And we find a record of that in 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 5 and 31. And then we also see uh, those who returned from the exile in Nehemiah. And one of the first things that they did was to give thanks to God. Then in the New Testament, the tradition of giving thanks to God continues. Even though the object of thanksgiving is expanded. What do I mean by that? In the New Testament, the object of our thanksgiving points us to the love of God expressed in the redemptive work of Christ. And because this expression of gratitude is tied so closely to our response of faith, the Apostle Paul also encouraged believers to give thanks in all things. One of the most explicit verses in all of Scripture, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, which I had the opportunity to preach last Thanksgiving weekend. It says this, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And this verse instructs believers to give thanks to the Lord, not for everything, but in everything. And there's a big difference. Often our thankfulness focuses on things that are physical in nature rather than spiritual. We're thankful for our health. We're thankful 
for our families and our homes. We're, we're thankful for our jobs and financial stability. We're thankful for the things that we possess. And we should be. We should be. Those are a measure of grace. Yet all of these things are subject to change. Think about it. Health can be overcome by sickness. Marriages and families can be subject to divorce and death. Bank accounts and financial situations can suffer hardship. Jobs can change. And truth be told, we're all just one canyon fire away from losing all of our possessions, aren't we? So the reality of that in the recent weeks. What do we do then? How does that affect our thankfulness? Of course, we remain grateful. Someone once wisely shared, when asked if my cup is half full or half empty, my only response is that I'm thankful that I have a cup. That's a great outlook. This morning, I don't want to dismiss all the physical blessings we enjoy and are thankful for, yet it's my hope that we can look beyond these material things, these temporal blessings that are subject to change, to spiritual realities that never change. I've entitled this message, Unchanging Reasons to be Thankful. And we'll spend this Sunday focused on a loaded passage found at the end of Romans chapter 8. When our care groups launched this fall, uh, we started back in on our study at Romans chapter 12 because we, we had finished uh, Romans chapter 11. And like your care group, you probably had a review and went through and got to take a, a, at least a snapshot of what the opening 11 chapters look like. And our review involved us reading each chapter and then sharing some of our favorite passages and why. A review allowed us to see that early on in Romans, Paul argues for the sinfulness of man and the universal need of man to have salvation in chapters 1 through 3. Then Paul, led by the Spirit, records that sinners are justified, not by works, but by the grace that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, and were resurrected from the dead to walk in newness of life. We see that spelled out for us. In chapters 4 and 5, in chapters 6 through 8, Paul admits that though a person is saved and justified by grace, they still live in a sin-cursed world and that the flesh wages war against the work of the Spirit. We still sin. We still fail to do what we know the Lord wants us to do. And this battle will continue as long as we live in these fallen bodies. And yet there's Deliverance promised through Jesus Christ. Paul affirms it at the end of chapter 7. Those who have repented of their sin and who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation have no condemnation leveled against them from a perfectly holy and just God. Yes, we'll still be sinners. We'll still battle against the lust of our flesh. But all true believers have the indwelling spirit. We have the advocacy of God that dwells within that now allows us to be encouraged, to help us, to illuminate us in our understanding of his word and to empower us to live lives for Jesus Christ and his glory. Not only that, when we pray, 
the Holy Spirit assists our prayers according to Romans 8.26. For many in our care group, the verses at the end of Romans chapter 8 stood out because of the encouragement and the assurance that these truths provide. This passage is arguably one of the most encouraging uh, passages in all of Scripture. It stirs our hearts to thankfulness because it points us to the love of God expressed in the redemptive work of Christ, which again, that theme is consistent throughout all of the New Testament. John MacArthur calls verses 31 through 39, quote, a hymn of security, end quote. They are so encouraging because they remind us that no matter what may come upon us, all is well for those who are in Christ Jesus, at least in an ultimate sense. Another pastor said this about Romans 8, 31 through 39. You may lose your dog, your cat, or your job. You may lose your reputation, bomb a final exam, be in, a, be in great debt, have a loved one die, be rejected by your family for being a Christian, have a spouse divorce you, be mugged, or have a million other bad things happen. But if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have plenty to be thankful for. End quote. Amen. Amen. Let's see why as we mine the treasures of this passage together. Romans 8, 31 through 39 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Pray with me and let's ask God to bless our study. Our God and our Father, we pause right now just to meditate on the reality of what your word has just shared with us. And perhaps it's been a long time for some of us since we've uh, looked at this text. And for many of us who studied it in the recent years in care group, maybe there are truths that we need to be reminded of. So oftentimes we can put our security in other things, even in ourselves. And how quickly you would call us to repent of that, especially when it comes to our eternal security and the everlasting love that you have set on us. A love that's not earned, 
a love that comes through grace, a love that is ultimately displayed in the reality of all that your son is. Jesus Christ is love. He is the ultimate expression. And so my prayer, Father, this morning is that you would allow our hearts to be encouraged after we just meditate on these truths. That you would not allow us to walk away from our interaction with this text, not being changed, not having our hearts encouraged, and that it would continue to help us walk with you. That there would be feet on our faith and that we would point others to the unfailing love, the enduring love that you provide through Jesus Christ and the gospel. And so, Lord, we commit this time to you. We ask that you'll bless it in every single way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as your outline indicates, we're going to look at seven unchanging reasons to be thankful rooted in God's everlasting love. And we're going to pull these up on a PowerPoint. They're filling the blanks in your uh, outline. So I didn't want you to get too far ahead of me and learned a little trick from Pastor Isaiah. Uh, just kind of use more fill in the blanks and, and uh, keep, you, keep you in step. Uh, the first unchanging reason to be thankful is this. Be thankful that God is for us. Look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? Stop here for a moment. These things are pointing us backwards, right? What Paul has just written. And it's possible that Paul could be referencing uh, the things that he's written in the previous seven chapters. But it's more probable that he's referring to the near context of chapter 8. The next question in our opening verse helps us. What then shall we say to these things? Look at the middle of verse 31. If God is for us, who is against us? From this point on to the end of the chapter, Paul expounds the fortified position of the believer. And the key lies in this phrase. If God is for us, who can be against us? God has not given us empty promises. He has acted. And what he has done in Christ and through his spirit constitutes all the proof that we need that he is indeed for us. In what ways is God for us? How would you answer that question? A quick survey of this chapter provides an overwhelming answer. Verse 1 reveals that there is no longer the threat of condemnation. Verse 2 reveals that we have been set free from the law of sin and death. Verse 15 reveals that as children of God, we have been adopted into his family. Verse 17, we are co-heirs with Christ. Verse 23, we have received the Spirit as the guarantee of our final redemption. Verse 25, our prayers are assisted and taken up by the Spirit and laid before God. Verse 30, our future glorification is so certain that God speaks of it as already taken place. And for believers who have already died, spiritually speaking, it has. Certainly, if God is for us, what does it matter who or what could possibly be against us? Amen? And this is only the first unchanging reason to be thankful. And I'm sure your heart, like mine, is already grateful. How do we know that God 
is really for us. The second unchanging reason is even more convincing. Be thankful that God has sacrificed his son for us. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? What greater expression can there possibly be letting us know that God is for us than not sparing his very own son for us? Again, the entire New Testament basis for giving thanks points us to the love of God expressed in the redemptive work of Christ. In fact, God specifically ordained the celebration of communion, also called Eucharist, which we had an opportunity to celebrate last Sunday as a church, so that we would always be reminded to give thanks. Eucharisteo in the Greek which means to give thanks, which Christ modeled when he instituted the Lord's Supper in Matthew 26. First, he passed the bread, and then he, Eucharisteo, he gave thanks again and passed the cup of the new covenant, pointing the disciples to his coming sacrifice. Communion calls us to remember And give thanks for Christ's sacrifice, affirming the reality that God the Father did not spare even his own son. One pastor shared, what is more precious than a son, a firstborn son, an only child, a loved and cherished sinless son, the very eternal son of God? And what fathomless depths of love, what incomprehensible kindness, compassion, and grace would move the father to sacrifice his son? What would move the father to not only allow his son to die, but die unjustly, to be tortured, to be crucified, and in the moment of his greatest weakness, to pour on that son the penalty for the sins of the world and the absolute fury of his holy wrath? God has done that for you, believer. And if God has paid the ultimate price to redeem you, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Only eternity will tell of the glories that will be given to you, even though you deserve none of it. Oh, believer, be thankful. End quote. It is our unchanging reason to be thankful. For God did not spare his son. It is a past completed action with continuing results. He did this for us. He did not only spare his son, but Jesus affirms that whatever we ask in his name, according to the father's will, that it will be granted to us. The father will freely give us all things according to his will, both now and in eternity. Our third unchanging reason to be thankful comes in verse 33. Be thankful that God justifies us. Verse 33 says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. You guys are familiar with this. In a court of law, when someone is being charged with a crime, evidence gets submitted by the the prosecution, And then a verdict gets rendered. And if there's insufficient evidence, 
then the verdict will be rendered not guilty. If there's evidence proven beyond a reasonable doubt, then a verdict is given declaring the responsible party guilty as charged. Earlier in Romans chapters 1 through 3, the Holy Spirit led Paul to record indisputable evidence of the sin of mankind. The Gentiles are condemned in chapter 1. The Jews are condemned in chapter 2. The entire world is condemned in chapter 3. And the verdict was rendered guilty as charged. Earlier, when, when we were talking about just even the, 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 the collection of, of sin, we see that God has um, spoken clearly in his word. We know this to be true. And so this is going to have us entertain a question. It leads to a response, and this would be true of anyone. When you consider the reality, if you were found guilty of a crime, what's the answer? What's the answer? You know this. If, you, if, you, if you're in court and, and you get charged with a crime and you're guilty and the evidence proves that you're guilty, what happens? You serve the time. You, you pay the penalty. You pay what is due. And so we have to ask the question, on what basis or through what provision does God see fit to acquit guilty sinners and announce them righteous? We know it's not based on personal worth. Scripture is very clear about that. God does not justify the pre-Christian or the unrepentant sinner on the basis of worthiness. As the psalmist wrote, no one is living... No one living is righteous before you, Psalm 143.2. And we have the familiar passages of Romans, Romans 3, which is a, a quotation of Psalm 14. All have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Consequently, Psalm 130, verse 3 states, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? Nobody. Nobody is worthy. We also know that no unbelieving sinner could possibly merit favor with God on the basis of personal pedigree or privilege. It doesn't matter if you were raised going to church. It doesn't matter if your parents or your grandparents or there's a legacy of Christianity in your family. You'll recall when Paul reflected on his pre-Christian life in Judaism when he, wrote, when he wrote, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Familiar passage in Philippians 3. Even Paul, as a highly credentialed Jew, was soberly judged by the fact that his personal Qualifications were worthless as a basis of acceptance before God. We also know that God does not justify us on the basis of good deeds or works of the law. Paul wrote earlier in Romans 2.13 that the only perfect compliance with God's law warrants the attrition or attribution of righteousness. It is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, when it is those who obey the law who are declared righteous. And it's not just obey the law, it's obey the law perfectly. 
And since no one keeps the law in its entirety, or not just its entirety, but in its entirety perfectly, no human can be justified on the basis of, of works required by the law. And Paul had to learn this the hard way, didn't he? He had to learn the gospel of grace. This is what so many in our, our culture today are learning in, in, in legalistic environments in the, in the church that have distorted the gospel. They need to see that it's not on the basics of good works or keeping the law that a person's going to be declared righteous. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin, as Paul declared in Romans 3.20. His bottom line was, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse, according to Galatians 3.10. So what is our justification or righteousness before God based on? And how would you answer that question if you were asked? I have a pretty good idea that most of you in the church would say that it's based on Christ's merits, right? It's a strong, well-taught group. You guys get the gospel. But in what sense? In what meritorial sense when we look at the life of Christ? We know it's based on Christ's merits, but it's in two specific ways. The first ground of justification is based on Christ's virtuous life. Paul affirmed that sinners are justified on the basis of the satisfaction rendered to God's moral law through Jesus Christ. The basis of a right standing with God is not the sinner's character, not his privileges, works, or even faith. It is all on account of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled God's will, thereby satisfying the Father's righteous and holy demands. And this is what the prophets of old referenced to in in the coming Messiah. In Isaiah 11, 5, Isaiah 53, 9, and 11, Jeremiah 23, 5, Jeremiah 33, 15, pointing to Christ who in word and deed would satisfy God's law. The Apostle John pointed to Christ's perfect righteousness when he wrote that the Son always strove to please the Father in John 5.30, and that he continually sought to do the Father's will and work, and was entirely obedient to the Father's command. John 14.31-15.10 The anonymous writer of Hebrews described Jesus as the one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners in Hebrews 7.26. In other words, Jesus Christ proved himself perfectly righteous prior to becoming the perfect sacrifice for sin, which leads to the second ground of biblical justification. The first is Christ's virtuous life. The second biblical ground of justification is based on the cross. In 2 Corinthians 5.21 Paul links the imputation of righteousness to sinners with Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. As Paul stated earlier in this letter, in Romans 5, 9, we have now been justified by his blood. Paul affirmed this point again in Romans 5, 18 and 19, even more specifically when he declared, just as a result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. 
For just as through the disobedience of the one man, a reference to Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, a reference to Christ, the many will be made righteous. In other words, this one act of righteousness mentioned in Romans 5.18 and 19 identifies the grounds of justification as Christ's obedient submission to death that crowned his entire life of fidelity. His righteous life preceded his righteous sacrifice, and they're inseparably linked. And it's been my experience that sometimes people discount and don't see the, the reality right, of, of Christ's virtuous life. And how significant that is to the gospel and that righteousness that he established. Because if he just showed up and died and didn't live a life of testimony, how would we know? How, what would we base it? Who is Jesus Christ? Well, you say he's the son of God. Well, great. Is that it? Is that it? No. He came down. And we heard a great sermon by Isaiah recently just even talking about in humility that he took on flesh, right? That he lived, that he was born among us. We have that. 1 John 2.2 states that on the basis of Christ's atoning sacrifice, God the Father is propitiated. He's satisfied completely. He's completely appeased. And those who believe are reconciled to him. Peter affirmed that Christ's death makes believers acceptable to God and establishes a right relationship between the creator and the creature. And this drives at the very heart of the gospel and the reason we praise God Sunday after Sunday. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemies now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Can we ever say it enough? We, we, we can't, and that's why we gather week after week, and the songs that we sing that our, that our, our worship teams are so selective about and, and, and try to feature for us are trying to draw our hearts in and be reminded of the truth of the gospel time and time again. Thank you. Thank you. God is the one who justifies. Believer, this is an unchanging reason to be thankful. Amen? The fourth encouraging and unchanging reason to be thankful, rooted in God's everlasting love, is this. Be thankful that Christ intercedes for us. Look at verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Why do we need Jesus Christ to continually intercede for us? You know the answer to that question? Did you know that we are constantly being accused of our sin? Satan accuses you and I of our sin nonstop before God. And it's Satan's hope that we would be condemned 
just as he is? Have you ever imagined what that looks like practically? When you and I sin, or worse yet, refuse to repent of a sin, Satan is saying, look at what your disciple is doing now. He just got angry with his wife and kids again. Oh, look at her now. She's gossiping again about other believers in the church again. Oh, and this guy, he just lusted after another woman who is not his wife again. Oh, and what about this person? They just took money again and property from their workplace and justified it and tried to cover it up. And they did it again. Oh, and this person isn't trusting you or honoring you or disobeying you again. This is sobering to think about, the accusations. And what accusations? That's a good question. Do, do we give the enemy to throw at the face of God? Here's the good news. Jesus Christ is our intercessor. He stands in the gap and is seated at the right hand of God and he pleads for our repentance. He is there to remind Satan that every blood-bought sinner, every believer has been justified, declared once and for all perfectly righteous, holy and just before the bar of God because Christ's own righteousness has been imputed to us what accusation can stick none who is left to condemn you nobody nobody there is one perfectly holy just god who knows all the facts of every case perfectly and when an unworthy sinner places their faith In Jesus Christ, the perfect righteousness of the sinless Son of God, it's imputed or reckoned to them, and they are declared righteous. And you and I are great sinners. We are. We don't deserve his grace and his mercy. How many times, think about this, how many times do we fail him? If you've been walking with the Lord for a while, you know what you know. How many times do we fail him and nevertheless jesus glorified and exalted sitting at the right hand of the father intercedes for you and for me and everyone else who believes from the very throne of god there is no one left to condemn this is another unchanging reason to be thankful The fifth unchanging reason to be thankful comes in verses 35 and 36, and it's this, be thankful that no one can separate us from Christ's love. But what after after being saved, there was a wicked person that came into our life or some evil group of men who tried to take us away from Christ and to drag us into hell with them. Look at verses 35 and 36. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. 
This was a powerfully strong dose of encouragement to those that Paul was writing to who were suffering in the Roman persecution, who were suffering under Nero. They were in distress. They were being starved by Nero. They were thrown naked into the arena, first to be humiliated, and then to be devoured by lions for entertainment. They suffered peril. And many were put to death by swords at the hands of Roman gladiators. Yet God uses Paul's letter to let them know that no one can take you away or separate you from the love of Christ. No one. There is no trial. There is no form of persecution or deprivation or form of execution that can separate you from Christ's love. And even though they felt like sheep, in many instances, helpless sheep that were being led away to the slaughter day after day, no one could separate them from the love of Christ, nor could anyone separate us from the love of Christ. And oftentimes, it's good to be reminded of a context of a, of a letter so that we can see it with its depth, right? The reality of the Roman arena and persecution is what I believe led Paul to write verse 37, which gives us our sixth unchanging reason to be thankful. Be thankful that we are conquerors through Christ. Look at verse 37. When in all things we have overwhelmingly, in all things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And there are plenty of forces against the Christian, but nothing can successfully conquer us. A brief survey of Romans chapter 8, again, reveals several things that are against us. First, condemnation in verse 1. This is our state apart from grace. Second, sin and death revealed in verse 2. We're all sinners and our battles continue in the flesh. Third, sinful desires revealed in verse 8. And this refers to the ongoing temptation to be led by our flesh instead by the spirit. And it's impossible to, to please God. Fourth, pain and suffering revealed in verse 18. And again in verse 35. No one of us is exempt from tribulations, distress, and persecutions. Fifth, decay and the effects of sin revealed in verse 23. Our bodies groan, don't they? They groan in this fallen world. And those who are in your youth, let me just say, appreciate your youth. Um, because if you're a knucklehead like me and you played football for way too long, and as you get older and start to feel the arthritis and, and the consequences of poor decisions <laughs> that you made uh, when, you, when you were younger, your body starts to ache. It really does. It groans. We're in a fallen world, and the outer man decays. Sixth, weakness revealed in verse 26. Our finite beings are weak. We're incredibly feeble and weak creatures. In Christ, we have victory because he has conquered and overcame everything on the list. And as a result, he can help us overcome anything on the list. This is why scriptures remind us that it's what momentary light affliction, right? He has overcome it. 
We will be in a glorified state. We know this. You're familiar with the text. No more pain. No more sorrow. Every tear wiped away. By the way, the Greek word translated conquer is hooper nekao. You ready for this? Hooper is a prefix that means beyond. Or for simplicity's sakes, we could, we could say hooper means super. Okay? The Greek verb is nekao. And it means to have complete triumph or victory. And if you're a fan of Nike tennis shoes, this is why they named the shoe company Nike after the, the Greek verb Nikaio and the, the goddess who is named after vic, victory. The word Nike is a direct transliter, transliteration of the Greek word for conqueror. And the apostle Paul takes this word Nike conqueror, which by itself is superlative, and adds the prefix hooper or super, which amplifies the meaning. We are super Nike overwhelmingly conquerors, completely and utterly victorious. And we achieve our complete, utter, and overwhelming victory through him who loved us. That's how the verse ends. We achieve that victory through him who loved us. Notice not by our works, by our own righteousness, our own goodness, or merits, but the sustaining and ongoing love of God demonstrated in the willingness and sacrifice of the perfect Son of God to suffer, die, and rise again on our behalf. Again, all things mentioned as potential opposition in this chapter, we overwhelmingly conquer, overcome, and have victory over in Christ. And this is why, as believers we got to be reminded to not battle in our own strength, but to battle in his strength. That whoever serves is to serve in the strength that he supplies, 1 Peter 4.11. Whoever wants victory over sin and temptation, right, is called to stand firm in the strength of his might, Ephesians 6.10. And all of us must comprehend the, the, this, this reality that we're weak and feeble. But that is what God uses because his power is perfected in our weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. When we're running out of time, ladies and gentlemen, drum roll, please, because we're on our seventh and final unchanging reason to be thankful. No thing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And you're like, well, didn't we just cover that a couple points ago? Let me clarify, we didn't. We, first it was, um, if you'll look back up to number five, no one can separate us from Christ's love. And now I want you to notice the difference. Be thankful that no thing can separate us from God's love. There's some differences here. Paul starts off with, who will separate us from the love of Christ in verse 35. And he addresses both people and the greatest trials that people can ever throw upon us. Tribulations, distresses, persecutions, famine, and war. Now he expands on the concept to include not just people, but things. And he grasps for the greatest, most powerful things that he can think of or imagine. And he says in verses 38 and 39, For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, 
nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God. And here he includes the full love of the Godhead, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is stronger than the grip of death? What is as strong as the fight to survive and live? What is stronger than angels and principalities and powers, which are various ranks of angels? What is stronger than anything in the present that you can think of? What is stronger than anything in the future that you might be able to think of? What is stronger than the greatest created powers that you can think of? What is higher than the heights of heaven? What is deeper than the depths of Sheol? Answer, God's love for you, believer. God's love for you and for me. What created power will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord? And Paul is convinced there is nothing, and God's word affirms this. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing. Of course, if you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, or only profess with your lips, but not in your heart, none of this applies to you. You have reason to, to mourn and to be concerned. But there is good news. Jesus died for all sinners, shed his blood for the sins of the world, and commands all to repent of their unbelief and to trust in him today. If you came here Today, uncertain about your faith. Maybe your family function led you to come this morning. Will you commit your life to him this day? Will you answer his call now? Today is the day of salvation. Commit your life from this day forward to live for Christ and turn from your sins and completely trust in him for your salvation. Allow him to be Savior and Lord. If you do, then you will have something to be eternally grateful for. As I shared at the beginning of this message, let us be thankful to, for all the things that God gives us. Let us praise him for our health. Let us praise him for our families, our financial blessings, and so on. We don't want to take them for granted. But let us learn to be more thankful and more focused on the things which we can never lose. Let us learn to be thankful for those things that cannot change. When all the physical blessings and the temporal things, when they fade, when, when, when we lose sight, right? They're, they're, they're passing, passing blessings. Let us thank the Lord that there are some things that will never change. In these things, we have unchanging reasons for an eternal thanksgiving. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.
Father, as we close our service and bow our heads, we want to thank you for the, the reality of this passage that uh, reminds us of your love for every believer. And I can only imagine what it was like for those who were suffering such great persecution and who were having their lives threatened on a regular basis, how they needed to hear these truths even more. And the reality is we don't suffer that degree of persecution, and perhaps if we did, it would cause us to cling to these promises even more, the, the, the reality of all that you've shared, these unchanging reasons to be thankful because of your everlasting love. And so, Lord, I pray that this message wouldn't just be fuel for a Thanksgiving weekend, but that it would serve as fuel each and every time that we encounter trial or hardship in our days, and that we could look to the unchanging reasons, the unchanging realities that are ours in Christ Jesus, and that would fuel our obedience, that would fuel our love for you, that that would fuel our love for one another. We pray, Father, that even as the next holiday approaches Christmas, that we could have hearts that are prepared to put your love on display, that we can point people to, to the reality of a gracious and merciful God who stands ready and willing to forgive at any moment in any day. Help us to be ambassadors for your namesake, just as this passage shares, shares for your sake. Let us do that. And Father, again, we're delighted that you have provided us a church family where we get a share in this Thanksgiving and this remembrance regularly as we celebrate communion and as we enjoy one another. We pray that you would even bless our time of fellowship and that you would just receive our heart attitudes of thankfulness and gratitude. We commit the remainder of our time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.